Matthew 27, verse 45 to 50, the, Lord, the loud cry of victory. And we finished up last week why Jesus was on the cross and, and the two thieves are mocking him along with the multitudes and the Pharisees. And, and at one point, one of these guys who is on the cross mocking Jesus, that's hard, hard, that's serious sin. Not blaspheming, but blaspheming when you have moments yet to live. You have no fear of God at all, do you? But yet one of these guys, two equal men, not one a murderer and one a thief or one a rapist and one a, a, a thief. They were equally sinners, both thieves, which tells you that there is a choice. One of the thieves looked to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other guy, equally a sinner, could equally believe, right? He could equally have said, wow, you, this guy's, this other thief's faith just emboldened my faith. And if Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, what would happen if I said the same thing? Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus could have said, today you'll also be with me in paradise. Isn't that the picture that we as man made in the image of God are equally as powerful as God in this one way, choice. We can say to God, I don't care that you created me. I spit on you. I want nothing to do with you. And God will honor that free will. Or you as his creation can say, God, I know you made me for your plan and your purpose. And, and I want that. But yet I find sin hindering any good thing I attempt. It seems like the people I try to bless the most, I curse the most. I find when I try to be a good person just for even a few days in a row, it seems like the harder I try to be good, the worse I am. There's something rotten in me. Not in my willingness. My willingness is want to be pure and holy and, and follow you, but yet there's something there this sin nature that I, no matter what I do, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't help put this cracked soul together again. And what do we need? We need a savior. We can't save ourselves, can we? That's our first attempt. Be a good person. That would save us. If we're a better spouse, if we're a better parent, if we're a better American, if we're a better neighbor, if we're a more honest person, a more loving person, a more kind person, and, and we get these things in our head, and you can read many, many books and go to self-help gurus, and it will help some, because we're made in the image of God. We can, we can propel ourselves a little bit together, but yet inside we know darkness, serious darkness dwells. Bitterness can just come and ravage us. Anger, lust, greed can just destroy us literally in a day one day it seems like we got it in check the next day we make decisions that can destroy us and worse other people we love around us even more we need a savior and this is what we find in these verses in matthew 27 45 now from the sixth hour that's 12 noon until the ninth hour that's 3 p.m there was darkness over all the land. What is this signifying? 
this darkness. It's interesting that this was during the season of a full moon. So if it were just simply going to the night sky, it would still be quite light out because of the full moon. But yet there was complete darkness when it was sort of, so to speak, nighttime at 12 noon. No stars, no moon, no light whatsoever. In Luke 23, 44 and 45, he signifies and says, the sun stopped shining. That makes more sense because, you know, the moon glows for us because it's reflecting the sun. But yet, if that sun is stopped, then the moon wouldn't glow. That makes more sense. Amos prophesies this in Amos 8, 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at what? Noon. <laughs> and make the earth dark in broad daylight. In the day of the Lord, referring to the first coming of Christ. This is one of the things. And if you were a rabbi and you studied these scriptures, you would have these little things tucked into your heart. The Messiah would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. This little thought, I don't know where this piece of the puzzle goes, but I know it's got to go up in this section because it's got red on it, and that's where the red section is. So I'm going to put it up there next to the red section until the puzzle starts getting developed, and then I'll find that place. This is what they were doing. That's what we're doing today in the second coming of Christ. Looking at the hundreds of prophecies, knowledge will increase astounding what has happened in the last 40 years. They'll go to and fro throughout the whole earth. There it is. Could somebody, even in the early 1900s, imagine that half of the population of the world a year would travel in an airplane? Isn't that amazing? Almost 4 billion people a year are in a metal tube flying through the air at hundreds of miles an hour by some guy in the cockpit that you hope knows what he's doing and is not drunk, something along those lines. We can keep going on down and check, check, check. And now with this, you know, later in Acts, we're going to learn many Pharisees came to believe in the Lord. There's just too many of these boxes checked of prophecies they knew would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah that had happened. But let's understand what the darkness represented. God's judgment and wrath against sin and the sinner. Right? A matter of fact, it tells us in Matthew 25, 30, Jesus explaining what hell looks like. He says, Throw the worthless servant outside into the what? Darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness is a place of God's judgment. Light is a blessing of God. And how we just simply expect it. Enjoy it, even though we're not worthy of this light. And we never think twice that God is the one who brought us this light. You know, that sun, just a little bit closer, we would be toast. 
that sun just a little farther away, everything would be ice. But yet you get that sun exactly where it's supposed to be. We love it, right? That's why we live in Southern California. We love it. We thank you, God, for it being this warm, but not too much warmer. We, we love the seasons. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, of course, in California, we don't really have seasons, but we pretend we do. <laughs> They're there. It's very minute. It goes from 69 to 70, back to 69 degrees. But that one percent of degree around October, November, we enjoy it. Like, wow, this is a cold winter. Whew, went down to one degree. But it represents darkness. Listen to this. The cross was a place of divine judgment. The sins of the world were poured out vicariously on the Son of God. Supernatural darkness had expressed God's reaction to sin. The sin of the whole world was laid upon Jesus. Do we get that? If you or I were hanging on that cross, we would sense our lifetime of sins. But Jesus hanging on the cross, who had no sins of his own, yet he took from the first sin of Adam and Eve to the last sin ever committed, probably by me. And he took them all. And in one moment, the Father judged all sin of all time that would ever be committed on earth. Isn't that an amazing act? Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to be man to be our substitute. But in order to take the sin of the whole world upon him, he had to be eternal. So therefore, the only person who could take away all the sin in a moment like this in his death was the perfect Lamb of God, who was man and 100% God at the same time. It's interesting, we don't know if this was just a local darkness or a worldwide darkness. I believe there's pretty good um, references throughout the world. I, I don't have time to go on that. You can Google it and look it up. But there are definite documentations around the whole planet about this day of darkness. Interesting, two very famous historians talk about it. You probably know them. Origen and Eusebius. They both quote a Roman historian who talks about this extraordinary solar eclipse as well as an earthquake at this, around the same time. What does he actually say? This guy, Philegion, says this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary ellipse of the sun at the sixth hour. The day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were, were seen, and there was an earthquake. Wow, I believe it was worldwide. But of course, uh, the documentation is there, to, I think, suggests that. It's an interesting thing to look up for the apologist amongst us. But skipping down to verse 46 to 49. And about the ninth, 3 p.m., Around the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. (laughs) Even here, when such a profound moment is happening, with a loud voice so clearly declared, these men of hard hearts still could not get it. Jesus calling out to the Father. Matthew, or Luke tells us, he actually said, Eloi, Eloi, in Aramaic, that he actually spoke, not Hebrew. Eloi, Eloi, lama Zubathani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is interesting. Because the rabbis of this day should have known a very famous passage out of Psalms 22. Now, when a rabbi would teach, he wouldn't necessarily teach the whole chapter. He would just simply give reference to a passage in the passage, usually if it's a psalm, the very first of the psalm, and the students would know which psalm he's talking about, and they would go and study that psalm out. So Jesus, as a good rabbi, is saying, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Boy, you can read that whole chapter. It's about the crucifixion. You can tell it, for example, in Psalm 22, verse 16, for the dogs, a euphemism for Romans, Gentile soldiers inhabiting the land. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. (laughs) How specific can you get, guys? This was written a thousand years in advance. Why did Jesus sense that the Father had forsaken him? Jesus had spent his life in all kinds of pain, physical and emotional. Remember in Isaiah 53, it tells us of Jesus' life. He was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. And it looked like to men that Jesus' life was cursed by God. It looked like he had been afflicted and smitten by God. Jesus was taking fiery darts from the enemy like we'll never know about. Jesus suffered greatly that he could know everybody's sufferings to aid us in our time of need. But here's what really happened. For the first time in eternity, the last time in eternity, the Son of God's fellowship with the Father was broken. And that fellowship of the Son's relationship with the Father being broken, and the Father looking at His Son and seeing sin, this brought about an unbelievable, painful, agonizing experience to Jesus. We learn of this in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Interesting. The father willingly let his son suffer and die this horrible, torturous death that we could have our sins forgiven. In Galatians 3.13, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, listen, having become a what? Curse for us. For as it's written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is that God, referring to the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Christ was reconciling in that moment the world to himself by bearing all our sins. It tells us more plainly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, made him new who knew no sin to what? Listen here. To be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of Christ. I want you to understand this. Jesus became sin. We sin. We're all sinners. We're going to stand before God as sinners. But Jesus became sin. We have a picture of this. After the children of Israel came out of Exodus, it tells us about it in Numbers 21. It tells us this story how they were murmuring and complaining and God had supernaturally been protecting them from the poisonous snakes in that area. But when they began to murmur and complain, he just said, I'm going to take the protection away for a moment so you can see what it's like. And these snakes began to bite people and they began to die. Remember, there were millions of people at this time. And they ran to Moses and said, help us. And God said, Moses, get the rod that the flags will be upon. This was the flag of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the lineage of Judah. And put on it a bronze, bronze is the medal of judgment, snake. And as they look upon that bronze snake, the poison will leave their body, they won't die. Now, you, you first read that story and you're going, God wants us to look to a snake for salvation? I mean, I, I could see a lamb, a little innocent lamb up there, sort of horrific, but nevertheless, that imagery, that makes sense. Because the snake, that's the devil. That's evil. That's sin. Christ wants us to look to a snake? I, I, I'm, I'm totally confused here. Until we get to John chapter 3. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how is this possible? He said, that which is flesh is flesh, but that which is spirit is spirit. And he said, just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And those who look up shall be saved. Do you get it? It did represent evil wickedness, sin. Jesus in that moment went from the innocent lamb of God to sin for us through and through. Why? So that you could become. You could be transformed. You could be changed. You could be born again into righteousness. Do you understand that? We don't have a coat of righteousness we could take on and take off and, oh, I can't lost my coat. Anybody remember where I put my coat of righteousness? <clears throat> it can't be lost. Why? Because it's not a coat. We, when, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we're like, yuck. And when we try to look into our heart, we're like, ugh. 
But when the Father looks at us through the lens of His Son, Jesus Christ, He sees perfect righteousness. That's the work. That which is flesh is flesh, but that which is spirit is spirit. Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus fully experienced man's separation from God. We know what it's like to be separated from God, don't we? In Isaiah 59, we know this verse 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your sins. In this case, our sins on Jesus. Iniquities have separated us from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you did not hear. And Jesus became sin for us. What is it that separates us from God the Father? What separated Jesus from his Father? Not his sin, but our sin. Our sin caused Jesus to agonize. Do we understand that? When Jesus felt the separation from God, his Father, in that moment, that broken fellowship, something he had never experienced in all of eternity and never will again, it's your sins that put him to death. It's your sins why he was nailed and bled and tortured. It's your sins that did the worst possible thing and that was broke the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure, talking about God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look at wickedness with favor. The Father couldn't look at the Son the father couldn't look at the sin. He's too holy. He's too pure. When he saw his son, he was grieved at the sin. Not the son's sin, our sin. They misunderstood right to the bitter end. These Jews that knew the scriptures, these Jews that said they spoke for God, could still not understand Jesus, could they? And then one ran and put a sponge full of sour wine and put it to the reed and offered it to him to drink. Remember earlier on, they, they offered this to him. They offered to each of the guys to try to, it was sort of some kind of painkiller, so it give them sort of a, a buzz in their head and sort of put them into a, a stupor so they would sort of not be aware of all the pain they're going through. And Jesus rejected it. Why? Because his work wasn't finished. He had seven sayings in which he spoke. But then at the very end, he said, I thirst. Not here in Matthew, the other Gospels. And they put it to his mouth. I don't know if it did any good. And then immediately, when that sponge came away, he gave up his spirit. And we see this in verse 50, the final verse we're looking at today. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus, again, as he's on this cross, you, you, you go down into this area, you let go, and, and you're just hanging by your skin and the bones and the, and the tissue of your hands, but you start to suffocate, and you wake up, and you, you, you pull yourself up a little bit, and Jesus spoke, and, and as we look at the other sayings, it was to those people near him. John, behold your mother. To the guy next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. But now... Jesus somehow at the very end of his energy is able to shout with a loud voice. 
He cried out. It tells us in John 19.30 what he cried out. He cried out, It is finished. In the Greek, tetelestai, which means paid in full. This was not the cry of defeat. This wasn't the cry of, all oh, the pain is getting to me. This is a cry of victory. I have finished the work. Do we understand all the dating system of the world to this day? We say it's 2019 because it was 2,119 years ago that Jesus was born. I don't care if you're in China or in some Arab country, in some Hindu country. This, they're all having to write and recognize the date, not that Buddha was born, not the day that Muhammad was born, but the day that Jesus came. God so loved the world, he came into human flesh. And then all the dating system back, B.C., before Christ. I know Satan is trying to change that, isn't he? B.C.E., before the common era. What's common? We don't know, but we just know we're not going to recognize Jesus. And um, and then he cried out a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is, again, a very common, common known psalm. In Psalm 31.5, listen to this. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. This was a psalm that the children would say before they fell asleep in their beds at night. You know, I grew up with that, now I lay me down to sleep. I don't know where this thing came from. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord, that terrorized me. It's like, I could die in my sleep. This is a, you know. Well, the Jews didn't do this. They said, into your hands I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Of course, that wasn't necessary for Jesus, right? But that's what they would say. So one author says it this way. Some speculate that Jesus said this. Was like a child with his father quoting this verse with the last little bit of strength before falling off to sleep. That Jesus said, ah, victory, it's finished, paid in full. And then he just laid his head down unto the Father. And just like a little child, five-year-old child trying to finish the prayer. Now, now I, I commit my spirit. <laughs> Jesus here is fully in control fully in control. And he lays his head down, probably with a smile. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. Jesus died with a psalm on his lips as he gently, peaceably, willingly died. Jesus died in a manner like no other man. He yielded up his spirit. Do we understand this? Because death had no righteous hold over the sinlessness of the Son of God. In Ezekiel 18.20 it says, The soul who sins shall die. 
Jesus' soul never sinned. He became sin for us vicariously, but Jesus did not have sin. So hypothetically, he could have stayed on that cross forever. John 10, Jesus prophesied it and told us ahead of time, didn't he? In John 10, 17 and 18, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Listen to verse 18. No one takes it from me. When you see me dying on the cross, you're not going to see some guy fighting to stay alive. And, and he, he, you know, like people in the hospital, if you've seen them trying to hang on for those last few minutes and trying to breathe and trying to stay alert and they don't want to die. They're, it's, just, it's just an involuntary muscle, isn't it? To fight to stay alive. We can't stop it. It's involuntary muscle. This is not what we see with Jesus. Jesus says, no one takes it from me in John 10, 18, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it again. This command I received from the Father. Jesus died because your sins put him to death. Jesus willingly died, completely in control. How is it that he died? Jesus had your sin upon him. Your sins put him to death. Listen to Romans 6, verse 5 and 6. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified, what? With him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That you, we should no longer be slaves of sin. You were on the cross, guys. Everybody in the history of man was on that cross. And everybody after Jesus rose again would be on that cross. We vicariously were on the cross with Jesus. And Jesus had the power to die, paying for the penalty of our sin. But he also had the power to raise again and say, you can be without sin. Do you understand that? The God never sees you as sin. But I, I do sin, Brian. I know. This is why John writes in 1 John, little children, I write this to you, don't sin. Sin hurts. It hurts others. It, it complicates things. It confuses things. It, it can really mess up our life. Little children, I write these things in 1 John 2, that you don't sin. But if you do sin, it's not the end of the world. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins and for those of the whole world. And so what does the Father say? It says in Ephesians 5 that God loves the church, those who are a part of the body of Christ. And he sees the church as his bride. And Jesus himself washes and cleanses and purifies his bride on a regular basis. I got mud, whoop, cleaned off. Lord, my feet are dirt, not anymore. Jesus is washing and cleansing us with the water of the word that we are without spot, without blemish. Like a bride on her wedding day in perfectly white garments, so are we, because this is what the cross does. It didn't just take away our sin once, and now we, the, you know, the, the whiteboard is all cleared off, but now we're dirtying up again. If that were true, 
then then really what we would do is you would come to receive the Lord and you'd say, we'll kill you now. Or you say, kill me. I want to die. I received the Lord in my life. Boom, I die. Because I, I don't want to dirty up the whiteboard again. There's some Christians that are in turmoil. There's some Christians that are, 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 are feeling so unworthy and so condemned that Jesus, you did so much. You died on the cross and I'm such a weak human being. I'm such a lustful human being. I'm supposed to go to church and sing the songs and pray the prayers and act like a Christian, but you and I know I am a very sinful person still. I'm a very weak person. I'm a very lustful. I'm a very greedy. I'm a very bitter person. I can't stand myself, and, and I feel like I'm spitting on you when I continue with such weakness after what you've done for me. This is why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. He, doesn't, he didn't just take on the sins up to the present day, did he? He took all the future sins on you, on himself as well. This is why in Hebrews 10, 14, through the one sacrifice, Jesus has perfected forever those now who are being sanctified. Those who are now slowly becoming more and more in the image of Christ. It won't happen here. And I'll just tell you guys, you, you, you parents who have parents and have children in their 20s and 30s, you, you know how this is. You look at your kids, they're doing great for a year, and then they're just going through a horrible time. Sometimes in their own life, sometimes in their marriages, sometimes with their finances, sometimes with some addiction. And you're, as a parent, just watching them go through that valley, do you love them less? Do you love your child less if he becomes an alcoholic? Do you love your child less if he becomes an addict? No, you love him more, don't you? And if we had the power, we would do all that we could for them and, and probably too much. But then they have a couple of good years and then they have some bad years. <laughs> they got a good decade and then there's a bad decade. Isn't this true about our own kids? Isn't this just a human condition? And the same with us as believers the willing is present with us always. That never, that never changes, does it? But yet, how to perform that which is good. Things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If Christ died for us, who can condemn us? If Jesus Christ made us righteous permanently, what does he say in John 6? All who come unto me, I lose none. All who the Father brings to me are in my hand, and I am greater than all. They're in my Father's hand, and he is greater than all. And of them we lose nothing. The salvation Jesus paid for was sealed, finished, completed on that cross because he took not just our present sins. Jesus took all our sins up until the day we got born again. But the sins after we got born again, no, that's on you. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. He paid all the sins to the last sin. And so Jesus knows us. That famous verse in Hebrews 4, 
We have a great high priest who sees us in our weakness and sympathizes with us. He's a great high priest that we can come boldly into the throne of grace to get grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Why? Because it's finished. He took care of it with a loud voice. He proclaimed the victory. So now we come into that throne of grace and we say, God, I'm struggling again still, as always. And Jesus doesn't look at us and go, I've seen sinful Christians, not like this. You really take the cake. I, I'm not even sure. Are, are you born? Hey, Gabriel, look in the books. Is this guy really born again? I, I don't know if you're named Julie in that, that book of life. Let me take a look. Now, what does Jesus do? Just like when our kids used to ride their little tricycles around and they'd fall over and they'd run in. Oh, I'm dying. And right there on my knee. You get a little Disney Band-Aid out and put it on their knee. Are you bothered by that? Are you bothered by them falling? Two seconds later, oh, my other knee. After 20 minutes of the tricycle, you got 20 Disney's little taped up and you're not grieved over it. Jesus sees us coming to that throne of grace and he smiles and I'm dirty. I fell in the mud. I tore my clothes. I'm wounded here. Jesus scoops us up just like you would that little five-year-old into his arms. Isaiah, right? Our shepherd is the shepherd who takes the little lambs in his arms and carries them in his bosom. This is our Jesus. This is what he has done. Jesus did die. Why? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I want to say this again. I, you, think of this right now. We were crucified with Christ. This is what God who is eternal. This is God who is all powerful. This is God who the past, present, and future are one and the same to him. He has the ability to take all of us on the cross with Christ. It's no longer I who live. When we said, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, we no longer live. It's now a new righteous you. The names written in the book of life, no erasers around. You are his child, for better or worse, richer and poorer. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the fact. Jesus, forgive my sin. Be the Lord of my life. The Holy Spirit enters us. He circumcises our foreskin of our hearts. It tells us in Romans 2, throws it away. We now, just like Jesus became sin for us, the Father saw Jesus and his Son, all the sin of the whole world in one moment upon his Son. He saw us there with that, and now he looks at us, and he sees us 100% righteous. Just as the Father saw his Son 100% sin, now Jesus looks at us, his other kids, and he sees us 100% righteous. So say that to yourself. Jesus sees me 100% righteous. Father, God the Father sees me 100% righteous. Now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brian, is this stuff really true? You have to have faith. You have to believe that God is that powerful. You've got to believe that God is that loving. 
you got to believe that historically, a carpenter from Nazareth who never traveled farther than 90 miles from his own hometown, never wrote a book, wasn't the strongest man, wasn't the richest man, wasn't a great inventor, wasn't a king or a prince, wasn't a philosopher. This simple carpenter from Nazareth was indeed God coming to earth through the Virgin Mary. And he all pointed to doing this work. A loud voice he declared, to tell us die. And one more loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The spirit leaves his body because he has the power to do so. No man takes his life, but he gave his life. And there in that moment, he died in fellowship to the Father. He didn't die as God. He didn't die in any way except in the fellowship of his. That's the only thing that was broken between him and the Father was that fellowship, not his deity. So our debt has been completely paid through Jesus on the cross. The debt of sin was obliterated as Jesus paid it in full when he died on the cross. This is provided by grace. Now we receive it by faith. The just shall live from faith to what? Faith. When we begin to see God's holiness clear, we begin to see our wickedness clear. When we begin to see our sinfulness we begin to understand how horrible what the Father saw on Jesus was really about, huh? As a 12-year-old child, you, you come to Christ and you go, all my sins are on Jesus. I should give that little eraser back I stole from Susie. But then that 12-year-old grows up to 48 years old and now looking back at their sins going, this is hard to believe now. This is hard to believe that Jesus still loves me. Out of all the sin I've done in these last 48 years, I, I'm just, I know, I know it does take more faith the longer we live on this earth, doesn't it? But we can have that faith. A couple more verses, we're almost there. Romans 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. Listen to this, Romans 3.22. <clears throat> the righteousness of God comes from faith in Jesus Christ to who all believe. To whom all believe. What's the final on this today? Jesus really loves us. The cross tells us, it screams us, Jesus really, really loves us. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. If you didn't get that God loved the world before, then in this act of his son, we should get it. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might, what? Live through him. Not through our righteousness, but through his righteousness. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we thank you today for this passage. And, and Lord, we do realize that there's so much that we don't meditate on. There's so much about this that's so rich and deep and powerful that we can really sink our faith into. 
We thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I first want to address those who are not believers to this point. You're hearing this message and you don't understand it all, but you need a savior. You recognize your sinful condition and your heart is crying out, not for condemnation, but forgiveness and mercy. Right now you can believe on God's only way of salvation through Jesus and just cry out, Father, forgive me. Through the work of your son on the cross, his death and resurrection, I'm a sinner, but you love me even when I didn't know you, even when I was living a life the opposite of what you would want me to live. You still love me. And I heard the word today of salvation, and by faith I receive it. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I want to know you. I want to learn of you. I want to follow you. If you're a despondent Christian here today, you're barely hanging on. You're struggling. You're, you, you've been just having a harder and harder time believing God would forgive your sinfulness. After so many years of knowing all the right doctrinal truths, after knowing so much of the Bible, after been to church so many times and hearing so many sermons, and yet here you are weak in a way that you didn't even know you could be weak. But yet here you are at a special low place, at a special miry sinful place, and it's disgusting you, and, and you're wondering, am I really saved? Am I going to heaven? Am I really God's child? Yes, of course you are. It doesn't matter how many numerous your sins are. It doesn't matter how deep your sin is. It was finished on the cross. It really was. All sin the hideous, most hideous, most hideous of sins ever committed are forgiven. The person who did more than anybody else, sin more than anybody else by number, that guy also can receive righteousness by faith. So right now, Lord, I come back to you. Lord, I re-give my life in, in, in faith again. From faith, I gave my life to you in the past, and now by faith, once again, unto righteousness. I yield my life, Lord. Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me as I know you already have. I want to be your child in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.